the, the, the Boga Honey Podcast. That's why I, I tried not to have camps on my bow. I don't have to deal with slippage or anything Shut like that. Up. Just put a new string on there, you're fine. What is Boga? But seriously, that's the dumbest thing ever. It, it go, I am all about Just strap it to your pack. Really appreciate the fact that you're from Michigan and not Georgia. So you don't want to be the next Mark Kenyon. No. I'm a shit show. <laughs> that's, that spot's taken. You can see how pathetic Jared's face is right now. <laughs> because that's how it looked. It was just like, is this good enough? Before we jump into this episode, we have to thank a few of our partners that help make this podcast possible. First up is First Light. Great camo, fusion, cypher. You get to pick your option, or you can go that new ash gray color. Uh, they make fantastic merino. They make great stuff for elk hunting, great stuff for hunting down south, great stuff for deer hunting by us. Um, so we rock it all year long. We love it. Check it out, firstlight.com. If you guys are in search of a new pack, then you guys have to check out the Seek Outside Short Tail. It's designed to cover three main uses, which are the western big game hunts, it's tree sand friendly, and it's great for backpacking long trails. And it can pack out close to 200 pounds. You could carry out a Jared. You can carry out one of me if you use want. The, use the promo code BOGA, all caps, for 5% off your order. Jared's sold separately. If you're looking to get into the tree saddle game this year, then you guys need to check out Trophy Line. These guys have been around since the 1960s, and they've been doing it ever since. We're going to be rocking their Ambush Light tree saddles this year. They're lightweight, they're comfy, and they're extremely easy to use for that beginner. Head over to their website and use the promo code BOGAHUNTING10 for 10% off your order. If you're looking for a quality, handmade, top-of-the-line traditional bow, look no further than Bivouac Bow Company. Jim and Georgia there are excellent boyers, handmade, custom. They are precise, and they make fantastic shooting bows. If you're looking for a great bow, check them out, bivouacbowco.com. So if you guys are like me and you find that buying new arrows can be completely cumbersome and annoying where you have to go to the bow shop and have them cut your arrows and glue in the inserts, then you guys need to check out Vector Custom Shop. All of their arrows are purpose-built, meaning they're going to take your draw weight, your draw length, and a bunch of other specs that you want, and they're going to actually make the arrow for you and then send it to you. And they have direct-to-consumer prices. So check these guys out, VectorCustomShop.com. There are a lot of good apps out there, but if you're a hunter and you're looking for a do-it-all app, check out HuntWise. First of all, they have GPS software that tells you where you are, where boundaries are. You can share locations. But it's also a, a community of hunters where you can all share what you're experiencing. We'll post there pretty regularly. Actually, that is where I have my only social media account. So if you want to see what's going on in my mind, go to HuntWise and check us out. Excellent. All right. Welcome to an episode of the Boga Hunting Podcast. Yes. This month, we are... Knocked my mic. This month, we are um, doing all, everything whitetail hunting in October. Um, and so, we've got a special guest with us this week, Shane. Um, you know, how, what do you, how do you want to describe yourself, Shane? I feel like, you're, I mean, first thing I think of is, you know, a trad bow shooter extraordinaire. Mm. Uh, but like, <laughs> what, what, what do you do for a living, Shane? Well, I'd say I'd say trad bow shooter, yes, extraordinaire. Well, maybe not quite up <laughs> up to that level, but uh, yeah, I'm uh, 
Yeah, bow hunter, traditional bow hunter. Um, I work as a, I guess, ecologist for a consulting company. Um, I do a lot of work with wildlife biology type work, um, but also a lot of plant work and botany stuff. Uh, Pretty, pretty diverse, um, pretty of a diverse job. I do a lot of bird surveys, fish work, um, like I said, plant works and work with endangered species and uh, a lot of habitat restoration work that I've been doing for about the past decade now. So, okay. What kind of restoration? What, what, what kind, actually, you know what, what kind of endangered species? Like we talking Bengal tigers here. We talking like, like something local. <laughs> well, that, that, That's what most people think of um, when they think of endangered species, but a lot of people don't realize how many endangered species there are, you know, right in their own backyard. And, um, I think a lot of times that's, that's sort of the more important thing or the thing that you can have a bigger impact on, you know? Um, so it's good to bring that to people's attention, but the, a lot of species that I work with are, uh, plants like, um, a lot of the prairie species, tall grass prairie species, are really, really limited. They have a really limited range in Ontario just because of um, uh, sort of the way Ontario is situated and how it how it goes down pretty far south into the United States. And it's actually um, along the same latitude line as like northern California. So we get a lot of the southern species. And um, so dense blazing star, willow leaf aster, um, purple tway blade orchids, um, eastern prairie fringed orchids, a few different types of trees, hop trees, Kentucky coffee trees, butternuts, things like that. Yeah. And they're all, they're, all, um, they're all at risk in Ontario. Um, and part of that reason is because they have a limited range. But sure. <clears throat> And then I guess on the wildlife side of things, I do a lot of work with snakes. Um, which, yeah, which I feel like <laughs> is a worthwhile point to, to touch on because I think snakes get a, get a particularly bad rap in the hunting community for some reason. Um, you know, there's a lot of misinformation. A lot of people are kind of, you know, not comfortable around snakes. And unfortunately, a lot of that turns into, you know, the only good snake is a dead snake and stuff like that. And right. Most of them are harmless, but uh, the ones that I have been working with for the past like ten years are eastern fox snakes and Butler's garter snakes. Oh yeah, okay. and um, yeah, we've radio tracked them, like I said, for for about ten years, and learned a lot about them, and realized how how unique sort of their life history and biology is, and how well they they can um, adapt and live around humans and stuff like that. They're Really interesting species. Which yeah. garter snake were you? Did you mention? Because like growing up, we in Michigan, we have garter snakes everywhere. Is there? You know, they're. I feel like ours are green and black, but I don't know. Is that the butler? Is that what you said? Yeah, no. The, the most common one is um, an eastern garter snake, which are very common and, and wide ranging throughout Ontario and Michigan as well. Yeah. Um, you guys have butler's garter snakes. They are. They're similar. They're in the same genus, but they're <clears throat> slightly different. Um, the head shape is a little bit different. It's smaller, more compact. You, they don't have a noticeable neck, usually more defined stripes. Um, they're pretty limited to only remnant tall grass prairies. And um, 
yeah, they're a neat species, feed mostly on earthworms, and um, almost all of them that we've tracked hibernate in underground crayfish burrows really? in the prairie, which are pretty neat. Yeah, they and... get down into the water table so they don't freeze. Right. Burr. Now, that's pretty That's pretty. <laughs> well, so I, get a, I was just out a um, week and a half ago, saw a blue racer, which I don't know if it's rare for everybody listening to this podcast, but I feel like I don't see a lot of those, but it was like a... Six foot long, no thanks. big, big old snake. You know, they're pretty. They're yeah, bright blue in the bottom. They're a gorgeous snake species. Yeah, we've actually only got them in one little island, Peely Island, uh, in Lake Erie, and that's the only place um, they exist in Canada, I believe. And um, but they're a little more common in Michigan. But yeah, they're very cool snake species. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Like when you. I mean, what's sweet about hunting is <clears throat> you are outside and you get exposed to, like, a lot of things other than deer. Like, last, you know, a couple weeks ago we, we did a podcast where we talked about, you know, small game hunting and just the fact that that kind of gets overlooked, like, squirrels and stuff. But as you get to learn, you know, different types of snakes or birds or, or things like that when you're out in the woods, it's kind of like, oh, that's really cool. You know, I know what that is. I kind of have some understanding. Um so part of my daughter's program, you know, in school is like, she talks about learning these animals and they like refer to it as friends. Like, oh, that's my friend, the cardinal, you know what I'm saying? And so like, they've got like a little bit of a relationship with the animal and they get real excited when they see. Friend know, owl. Exactly. It's like, oh, that's my friend. We, or, you know, we, I don't know about that one as much. We're not friends yet. So it's pretty cool to see, see that play out. But as hunters, going back to what the rambling point's all about is, uh, I feel like you just get exposed to a lot of really cool stuff just being out there. Yeah, you do. There's so much to appreciate, you know, beyond beyond deer and beyond hunting. And obviously that's our our focus when we're out there and everything. But on a slow day, or even I think it can make you a better hunter to have an understanding of, of things beyond just deer um, or whatever game species you're pursuing. But it also just makes those slow days that much more enjoyable. It's hard to have a bad day out hunting or out in the field when there's endless things to look at you know you can i get distracted walking out to my stand looking at plants looking at birds looking at you know i'm sitting in my tree stand and i'm identifying all the warblers migrating by uh this time of year in the fall and it just adds to the experience i think Mm -hmm. yeah i I do i feel like it's even just a, a a good idea of the plants you're looking at you know, what kind of tree, what kind of oak tree. And I'm usually surprised by how few people, how few hunters know the difference between a red and a white oak, right? Which is pretty significant as a hunter because deer definitely prefer one over the other. Um, But, you know, a lot of people don't know it. So I try to spread stuff like that when I'm out, but, you know, I'm not a a botanist like you are. So we're kind of excited to have you on so we can get some tips where to, you know, this time of year, early October, go to find deer as things start to change and different plants grow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good to have some good resources for knowing how to identify these things. Like hopefully we can talk a bit about it, but at the end of the day, it takes some learning on your own personal time and some effort in order to, uh, to learn these things. Like it doesn't come overnight, you know, you got to get familiar with, with different species and how to identify them. A big thing is, is to look at, to know what to look for to identify it rather than memorizing every single species. If you know there are certain key features that you look for in every tree or every plant, 
And if you take note of those features or you can photograph them when you're out there, then it's a lot easier to identify them when you come back out of the field and you, you know, you can look at your reference material. Yeah. And so when you're, <clears throat> when you're going to school, uh, are you, how, how are you learning this stuff? Did you spend a lot of time in the field? Is this classroom stuff? You know, what is, what does it look like to be trained in this, in this stuff? Yeah. A lot of time in the field, um, and, and the classroom, I guess. I mean, there's only a certain amount that I think they can teach you at school. And I did learn a lot, but at the end of the day, like I said, it does, does come down to a lot of just learning this stuff on your own because it's so specific in what location you're in. And, um, you know, it just, it, it helps to spend as much time as you can outside and constantly be, be learning things. Like if there's a plant or a tree you don't recognize, you know, it, Take the time to look it up. It's the only way you're going to learn. That's awesome. So, you know, let's let's play out some scenario here. Um, it's early October. You're walking out to your stand. <clears throat> or maybe you're walking in a new area and you want to find, um, you know, you're trying to figure out where the deer are. Um, you know, what, you know, the botanist inside of you, like, what are you, what are you pulling on from your training to, to maybe get an edge when you're looking for deer? Well, the very first thing I would do before even hitting the field is I would, I would, take a very detailed look at all of the satellite imagery that I can get. Um, different sources show different things, you know, Google Maps compared to Apple Maps compared to um, Google Earth. You can go back in time and see, um, you know, the landscape at different, through different seasons or at different time periods, and you can see how it's changing. But, and then also topographic maps as well. So I would, I would pour over maps as the first thing that I would do yeah. and what I look for in, in a, a site that is desirable for me to hunt as opposed to not as desirable is basically diversity. Um, you know, I hear, I, I hear a lot of people, not a lot of people, but I, um, one person who talks about it a lot is, uh, Zach from the hunting public. I've heard him mention it and, uh, I totally agree. Diversity. It's, it's probably the most important thing that I look for when I'm deciding on a place to hunt, when I'm looking at satellite imagery. And that can mean diversity in, in terrain, in vegetation types, in, um, in water sources, uh, different types of wetlands that can be different diversity in stand tree stand ages, um, can be diversity in, evergreen trees as opposed to deciduous trees. Um, but basically the more complex it looks and the more, the more of a mosaic and a patchwork that it looks like, it's usually going to be a better spot to hunt. Um, it's going to usually going to be better habitat for deer because there's just a higher chance with that increased diversity. There's a higher chance that there's going to be everything that a deer needs located in that specific area, in that habitat or in that landscape. Um, whereas, you know, you look at, at a satellite imagery of basically just a monotonous, um, woodland, you know, or, or, or what, or a swamp that just looks all the same. Number one, um, I think, it's less likely to hold deer all year round because if it's all one habitat type, their needs may shift 
as the seasons change. And also, um, it's just harder to predict their movements. When you've got, when you've got diversity, you usually have, you know, edges and funnels and things like that, where you can more accurately, um, sort of predict a deer's movement. Whereas, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to, to, uh, predict movement in like a big woods situation. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're out there, it's like, you're in the middle of it too. It's like, it's a crapshoot when you're in the middle of it. And I remember as a kid learning that the hard way where I'd be like, I'd walk out to a big mature, you know, forest. Right. And be like, well, I have no idea where to start. Um, and edges is like, is the easiest kind of thing to talk about because it's, it's easy to identify and it's generally going to hold deer, um, at all times of year. Yeah. Edges, edges. So, so when I actually hit the ground, edges are usually the first places that I, that I check out. And once you've done this for quite a while, um, you know, referenced satellite imagery and then, um, gone into the field and ground truth, the whole area, you get a pretty good idea of where the deer spend their time, where they bed, where they travel to, what their food sources are. And, you know, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not saying I'm, I'm perfect at it, but I've, I've gotten quite good at being able to sort of predict just by looking at a satellite image where beds are going to be, you know, if I see a, a brushy point that goes out into a swamp or, um, you know, a, a shift in maybe an opening in, in a full canopy, if there's an opening where it's, there's more ground uh, vegetation and thicker, thicker understory than, you know, I can pretty much guarantee there's going to be at least some deer bedding there. Now may not be a a deer you're after, but the more spots like that, that you can hit, then you can, you know, hopefully find, find bigger buck sign and, uh, and key in on that. But going in with, with, you know, a good understanding of the satellite imagery before you hit the field, locating 10, 20, 30 different areas, hitting all of those spots, and then keying in on the, the best looking spots is, is, um, sort of the way that I go about it. Yeah. We, we do the same thing. I mean, most of the time in the summer, we, we've got a shared, um, map, uh, map on hunt wise. And so Jared and I, like the early part of the summer, just would mark down spots that we were going to check out in that map. And we had a system for like going to check out based on, like you said, satellite imagery. Is this a, you know, a thick point, you know, sticking out into a swamp with like a bunch of brush on it? Uh, or is this, um, you know, a draw or something like right. that? Yeah. We'll, we'll mark it on a map, try to find spots, at least for us, um, that are harder to get to. And, and so we'll do like swampy spots or, you know, we need a kayak to get in. Um Although last time we did that, I got poison ivy. I never, did I tell you that? No. Yeah, I got. I don't. Rare, I rarely get poison ivy. You must have got. So it I bad. must have got into it because um, it takes a, like. I feel like I got to get into it a little bit to, got to get wrestling it. with it. Oh man, I could have itched my leg off for a while. That's that's no good. Yeah, it's not fun. Oh, there's okay botanist on the uh, on the line here. So Jared, you were mentioning jewel weed. Yeah. As a as a if I get poison ivy, rub some of that jewel weed on me. Is that true? Yeah, I've heard the same thing. I've tried it. I'm pretty bad for getting poison ivy as well uh i spend a lot of time in the field and it just seems inevitable that every year i get i get it a bit and um i've tried it i mean i would say it maybe makes it itch a bit less and i don't know if it makes it go away a little bit faster but um 
I don't know. I figure it doesn't hurt, right? Yeah, right. exactly. But I've heard, I've heard the same thing, yeah. It took over part of my woods. Yeah, and conveniently. If, quite veniently. Quite veniently. If you're, you're in poison ivy, there's a good chance that there's jewelweed right next to it. Yeah. They need the same type of soil. Same type of habitat. Interesting. Yeah, that's true. Yep. They both – jewelweed is like a, a wetland species, usually on the edge of a wetland in swamps and stuff like that, uh, meadow marshes. And, um, they got those little orange, little orange flowers on them. Yeah. And if you, you wait until that, that seed pod, uh, gets really big, it's, and you pop, you can pop it. Have you ever done that? Oh yeah. Seeds they just go, yeah. fly. <laughs> yeah. The, those things have taken over part of my woods. I ended up flaming them. Yeah. Should see, I not when, have done that? When I had poison ivy really bad, I, w- I was actually running on uh, a local like biking trail. That's your um, first mistake. And there was a really strong winds that night. And when I woke up, there was a big branch laying across the trail. I'm like, oh, all right, I'll just pick it you up. When you woke up, up, or when you got to the yeah, you, when I was when I ran up, yeah, onto it, got it, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was like, oh, I'll just move it. So I picked it up, and it was kind of like resting on my forearm. And you kind of half throw it with your hip, you know, and you're just like, get out of here. And at the end of the day, it had bubbled up to the size <laughs> of my hand. On my forearm, and then it was on my side. Oh, you hate to see it. Then I must have itched down low. Well, you, so things his must hand have is down, constantly you know? down his pants. I tell him all the time, Jared, we're in public. It's a bad habit. Get your hand out of there. He's always digging around. Regardless. Yeah, irregardless. <laughs> regardless. I, I crushed up some jewelweed and boiled it for a little while in some water yeah. and made ice cubes out of them. You just and it seemed cubes. to help just kind of take away. Do you think it was the it, cold that did it? I don't know. It just could have been placebo, too. I feel like the best times you get poison ivy are the times where it's so obvious. Like, oh, I had this big branch, you know. I went and when I got, we, uh, you can rent like an apple tree. And what? like, yeah, like a year you get the crop from one apple tree and like you pay for it. We did it with my in laws a couple years, long time ago. And so we'd all meet up and we'd pick apples for a day and like it was a whole thing. So one of those times, we, this guy's like, well, your apple tree didn't, you know, something not right with it. We're bringing you to this, another <laughs> apple tree. So I'm like, great, you know. And there's, it was really, like, they had trimmed it where the it was hard. You couldn't really grab the apples. You had to climb up in there. So I'm like, oh, I'll climb up there. Not a and good I've choice. got a, a picture of my brother-in-law and I, like, picking each other up to get into the tree. And just basically wrapping our arms around a totally covered in, in poison ivy. You didn't see it? Up until that point, and this was probably... Maybe ten, is that eight, five years ago. Okay. Um, I had never gotten poison ivy, so I just never knew to look for it. So I just never learned it. I'm just like it. I, you know, I walked through it, never got it. Cousins would get it and stuff. So that was the first time I like I was exposed to it, and I s- totally learned it after that. Yeah, you, you hate to see. You it. hate to see it. Um, so question for you. Um, another botany, and it's kind of related because these are things that I've seen in my, my woods um, here in Michigan. So the jewelweed is one. Um, the other one is the mustard, uh, garlic mustard. Now, am I right in that this is like pretty, like it takes over your forest, pretty invasive plant? Yes, it's it's not native to here, and it's it can be quite invasive, um, especially in shaded areas like woodlands. Yeah. It can take over pretty quick, yeah. That's what my woods is, and like, my neighbors haven't done anything in their woods at one point in the year is the entire forest floor is that plant and nothing else. Yeah. It's a bad one. It's it. And it doesn't, I mean, I've, I maybe see deer occasionally browse on it, but 
it's actually an edible plant for people. Oh yeah, um, I ate some. Y- y- yeah, you can eat it, but I don't. I don't notice that deer particularly key in on it. Um, but yeah, it's it's bad for just completely wiping out diversity. It it takes over pretty quickly. I didn't want to poison it. It's fairly easy to pull if it's in a small scale. Um, if you do it, especially before the seeds produce, so that they don't drop the seeds while you're pulling. Um, but if it's really bad, I mean, on some of the projects I've worked on, we've had to spray it with herbicide and and lay some native plant seed down and, and kind of hope for the best and stay on top of it. But I flamed it. I got one of those flamethrower, which are totally awesome, but uh, weedier, like flamethrowing weeder things. You know what I'm talking he about? He thinks he's a big deal. Oh, it's the best. I, fl- I flick that on and I just flame stuff. Uh, and but the, the reason I did it was I didn't really want to poison it. Um, and it was really, some of it was to seed and some of it wasn't quite to seed. I'm like, well, I don't know if it dropped it, or, but I figure flaming it might be the best, my best choice at this time. So I don't know if that was a good idea or not, but we're, you know, that's what I went with. Flaming it always seems like a, like a good option. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like just uh, spraying some fl- fire at it. It'll be fine. Yeah. When, when you're, when you're looking out in the woods and you're trying to identify, um, you know, plants that deer browse on and eat, you know, the obvious ones are acorns, um, and like hickory nuts and things like that. But, um, like what, what are some things that they love that maybe the, the, the average hunter wouldn't know about? Well, I found at certain times of the year, they really tend to key in on wetland species. And I find that's when they're green, either when they're first emerging throughout the summer and into sort of early fall. Um, some of them are still green into that October and even early November period if they, if, uh, you know, they stay wet. And, but some of those species are water plantain. I, I've noticed it. Yeah, it grows in in wetlands. It's got a fairly large oblong leaf. Um, the flower stalk is very um, it's very spreading, and it has small little white flowers. Alismo are they also called alismo? Alisma? Yeah, that's the uh, the scientific name. I noticed that they're very very often browsed by deer. Um, another similar one is um, arrowhead which is another wetland species, uh, sometimes called duck potato. I've noticed that deer really key in on that on certain times of the year. Um, that seems like a very attractive food source for them. Now, this is good information because a lot of our listeners are hunting public land, right? And so they're not, they, they have to learn things other than like, say, corn or soybeans or, or whatever that deer might feed on in a food plot. And they got to figure out like, well, what's, you know, what do I use that's already out there to try to, you know, kind of key in on a food source, which can be difficult if you don't have a a great extensive knowledge of the types of plants out there. Right. And, um, you know, those, those soybeans and, and corn and other agricultural food sources, I mean, they still eat a lot of that on public land, but the thing is they don't often make it out there during daylight hours, um, so if you can key in on some of those uh, natural food sources in between the bedding and their destination food source, um, yeah, they can be great spots to to hit. And it's it's not often that I'll. I, I mean, I I guess I do sometimes set up over a particular 
plant species that I expect to be a food source. But a lot more times it's using those, using that knowledge to identify plant species within within an entire habitat kind of and that's where deer are just going to spend more time um you know predicting because these these native plants kind of grow all over the place predicting you know which patch they're going to hit is is pretty difficult so a lot of times i'll just you know be looking at the the habitat in a more broad general sense and, and if there's a high concentration of plant species that I know deer um, key in on and like to eat, then that's where I'll just spend more time. And then once you, you know, once you do one sit there and you start to see how the deer use the area, then you can kind of key in on individual food sources. But um, I do like to look at it sort of from a broad perspective first and just see the amount of how abundant the food sources are on the, the landscape. Jared has a unique strategy to uh, identifying deer food. Like he saw a video once of, you know, that deer that eats a bird like on his back. And so Jared will just post up by a flocks of birds and hope for one of those situations to happen. And it doesn't work great. (laughs) I didn't know I did that. (laughs) I've just seen, I just watched a video of, I think one eating a duck, just a bird's like, all right, a deer's like, nah, you know, I need a duck right now. It just chomps him like he's eating a piece of grass. It's bizarre. Really? Oh yeah. You've never seen this? Oh no. Yeah, you gotta you gotta YouTube. Apparently that one. I have though. No, yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's technically not his yet. That's not his style of hunt yet. Now that you know about not it. Yeah, you know, I knows? might be on to something now. I've got one tip for you. Uh key in on ground nesting birds, not the uh not the ones that nest in the canopies. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. You know I've you, never you, seen a deer climb a tree. They're not usually that hungry, not even in Michigan. The deer I'm hunting <laughs> climbing trees. Yeah, that's right. I don't think those are deer. <laughs> hey, we wanted to take a quick break here from the conversation to thank a couple of our sponsors who helped make this show possible. One of the reasons why James and I love hunting so much is because we get to share our wild game with other people. But we need to be able to do it that's easy and reliable every time. Gorilla Grills is a local company here in West Michigan, based in Holland. One of the great things about them is they ship the grill directly to you. There's no middleman, no big box store, so they're able to make a superior product at a better price point. The food and the smoke quality that's coming off this grill is unbelievable. We've received so many compliments on it already. So if you guys want to find out more about what Mark and his team are doing over there, head over to GorillaGrills.com to order your new grill. Now a proud partner of Boga Hunting, the American-owned, veteran-owned, Wisconsin-based Vortec Optics Company designs, engineers, produces, and distributes a complete line of premium sport optics, accessories, and apparel. Dedicated to providing unrivaled customer service and exceptional quality, Vortex backs its products with an unconditional transferable lifetime VIP warranty. So if you guys want a glass with the best, head over to VortexOptics.com and use promo code BOGA20 for 20% off. Thanks for listening, and let's jump back in. So, yeah, that shows you just how, how variable their diet is. And that's why looking for, you know, going back to looking for diversity in habitat um, just increases the amount of time 
the, the amount of food that they have, but also the amount of time that they spend in an area before moving on to that destination food source. Yeah. Um, you know, cause they'll just pick one thing here, take a couple steps, pick, have a few more, you know, it's kind of snacking on or, stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, they, yeah. Will the deer feed on certain types of plants? Uh, like, say, if they first wake up, are they looking for, like, a... Like something sweet. Yeah, like some high en- Like a high energy. Yeah. And right. then, like, ending on, you know, that, that main course of, like, beans or soybeans? I'm not sure about that. I haven't, I haven't read anything or I haven't observed that. I know certain times of year they may key in on different species just for different, um, you know, I think they're they're just naturally attracted to that. Their body sort of, uh, sort of draws them to it, but plant sort species that have higher carbohydrate, uh, content or higher protein or fat content. Um, they may be keying in on those food sources in different times of the year when they require different, different energy, uh, different energy levels or, 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 um, you know, requirements. Yeah. It makes me think of, um, how, you know, when I was growing up, my uncle would get all these sugar beets. Oh yeah, remember he'd get like litter, like a one ton. They a, sold them by the ton. Yeah, just a ton, and he would just put them a few of them out around his property. But I remember like the key was the first frost with uh, sugar beets. Apparently, it, like you know, crystallizes whatever the sugar in there, and the deer go nuts. The starches. Yeah, I think so. I don't exactly know how it works. Shane, <laughs> do you know how it works? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well. <clears throat> I mean, I know uh, the uh, a first frost um, triggers a lot of a lot of fruit to become sweeter. Um, I think it's just uh, you're getting you know, put on the, the spot. You better, I know. I yeah, thought... yeah this, these are tough questions. Here. <laughs> it's all um, of our wonders and our thoughts. Yeah. I, I, to be honest, I don't know, I don't know exactly why, but I know that they do, there's quite a few different, uh, like berry species in particular where deer and also a lot of different animals, birds and, and raccoons and stuff like that. You'll notice that they won't touch them until, um, they've had a few good hard frosts or even later on in the winter. And then they'll, you know, instantly almost seems like become a a desirable food source. And I don't know if that's because the other food sources are limited and that's all that's left or whether, you know, the, the taste of them actually changes. Um, But yeah, I I do think the, the sugar content increases or there's some chemical change in a lot of fruit um, as, as the frost hits and as the colder weather. um, It's definitely fructose Mm -hmm. related. Yeah, I would say. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be fruit. Very knowledgeable, bro. I'll say yes to that one. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Just a couple. A couple other. While we're on the the topic of of uh, some different food sources to look for, um, just last year I noticed I had a trail camera in a hawthorn thicket, and um, I knew I noticed like a crazy increase in activity. Um, which I didn't really understand why until I went back and looked at the photos and hawthorns they're, they're in like related to, to apples they're in the apple family and, um, they'd have small red fruit on them. They almost look like a blueberry in shape. Yeah. But red, I noticed as soon as those hawthorn fruit dropped, 
I had pictures of like three different nice bucks that I didn't see in there all throughout, you know, throughout the, the rest of the season. Um, a lot of does in there, just a lot of traffic in there keying in on those, those hawthorn berries. And they spent a lot of time in there. You could, a lot of trail camera pictures with their head to the ground and, uh, and feeding on those. So it's good to know. That's actually mm-hmm. interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. And the unfortunate thing is they usually tend to drop, um, a little bit before the season opens up for us in October, October 1st. Um, last year it was like about mid September. If there's any left, you know, lying on the ground, it might be a good spot to key in on, um, sprouts may, maple sprouts I've, I've noticed like as soon as the keys hit the ground and uh you get any small maple shoots coming up i noticed deer spend a lot of time browsing on that um when maple leaves fall and they're still you know they're not really dry when they're just freshly fallen and they're still kind of um juicy and yellow i notice deer will eat a lot of those and and different different tree species as well, but they seem to really like maple leaves. All types of maples or like sugar maples? Are we, we talking anything? I've noticed more um, like silver maples, the softer, the soft maples that you see in, in wet areas and swamps a lot. Yeah. So like, I got a question about this. So like for, for a guy that, you know, wants to start learning about plants, um, like what's a good source of information or maybe like a, a good reference? Like, are we talking those little field books that they sell or is, you know, is there something that they should have on hand to, to, for, for identifying stuff? Well, there's some, there's some great apps out there right now, but, um, I, I think it's important. Field guides are great. I think they're, they're hard to beat. I just like look having a paper copy of something. Um, just as long as you get something that's local to your area, that's the most important thing. Um, a really good reference for Michigan is um, it's called the Field Manual of Michigan Flora, and it's by Voss and Resnicek. It's a it's a lengthy book. It's a little bit uh, technical, but if there's you know you'll be able to identify any plant, any tree that that you see uh in in michigan and i use it pretty much for all the species that i find in ontario and it's applicable to a lot of uh areas in the northeast the midwest oh yeah i've got this book i just i'm adding it to my cart right now <laughs> it's a fantastic book dibs on it after <laughs> you can actually access the entire book online for free and, it, and there's photos and everything and keys so that is is a great one for this area. I actually just got a an edible plants of the Midwest uh, for Christmas. So I actually read that last year, and there's a lot of a lot of cool information in there. Like always, those plants I'm bringing up whenever we're walking out through the woods. Is that where that's I got from? from that book? Yeah, is that, is that where Chaga came from? Oh, uh, that was from my dad. Okay. He was he was deep in the internet somewhere, and he found that and Chaga. He's I was like, I want to really try it, and then I started looking into it, and I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure i've seen that yeah in a lot of different places and that's the day i came up to your cottage and i was right outside yeah right outside the front door like right where oh, i parked there was one like the size of huge like a torso that, yeah that, that chaga that was amazing yeah i i actually chunked that thing up we didn't take it all you're supposed to not take it all and harvest it all right but we uh remember we chipped that all up i i dried it out i got a bunch still i have it every once in a while 
Nice. I'm out. I need some. I got a bunch for you. You're the man. Yeah. I throw some of those, um, what are those de- decadescent little packs there that, you know, that dry stuff out. Oh, yeah. You get yeah. them in, like, jerky and stuff. Mm-hmm. So. Nice. No, that's, that's interesting. And it's just good to know what you're looking uh, for when you're out in the woods. I feel like one thing that I'm particularly good, uh, one species of, you know, thing out in the woods are balloons. Like, when I'm out in the the woods, I find mylar balloons everywhere I go. <laughs> I feel like it is – I've actually, what I, I should do is i got to make a montage of all the photos that I have of when I found them. I found a couple in Colorado, but I lost those pictures. But I've got them here where we've been in, like, you know, a middle of a cedar swamp or, you know, just all these random places. I, I look down, I find, a, like, a giant, like, happy birthday mylar balloon. Yeah, so if you don't know what a, my, a mylar balloon – did I say mylar? Mylar. A mylar balloon is, it's the chromy outside looking balloons that reflect a lot of light. And you've seen them laying around all over the place. They're usually yeah. trashed in like the side of a ditch or, or just randomly in the, middle. in the middle of the woods. And it's it's a huge bummer because you'll be sitting out, you know, it'll be a beautiful morning, like sun's coming up or maybe the sun's going down and picturesque. And you look to your left and there's that stupid faded dirty shiny pink. Line. It's always dirty. It looks Mylar like. Mylar balloon. Yep. And it just somehow landed there after some kid's party. They let go of a balloon. Well, you know what's really funny? Uh, have you ever heard um, Dan Infault ref- reference balloons that he finds in the field and how it, he associates them a lot of times with good buck bedding areas? Oh, really? Yeah. And, I have and heard I think that. The, you have? Yep. Yeah. And it, I think the rationale behind it is, um, you know, they end up the, the their final destination that they end up landing in is usually in a spot where um, a lot of wind currents and wind directions converge, and that's sort of why it's drawn into that that area. So he's like, I don't know why, but I, I tend to always find these balloons, and then he kind of realized that, uh, um, yeah, I think it's a lot a lot of times in these thermal hubs where uh, you know, deer are able to bed yeah. and smell wind direction from a, a lot of different areas, and that's why they feel pretty safe bedding there. So you're telling me that James has been in the, all these buck bed areas? Yeah. I, that, that, well, that stands to reason that I'm not only an excellent balloon finder, I know where to find buck beds. Like, I, I have a nose for okay. You know what? I, I hate to say it. But I, some people are just naturals at things, you know. I oh and I gosh. think maybe this is this is my gift, and that's why it's good to be your. If Shane's theory partner. is right and Dan Ingvald is in spot in yeah. fault is spot on, then fine, I'll give it to you. You give it to me. I'll give it to you. I like a bloodhound yeah, when go. it comes to buck betting. We'll see this year, <laughs> man. I, I, yeah, I think it's a bit of for. <laughs> 90% of the time, I think it's a bit of a stretch, but... Uh, <laughs> it makes sense, I guess, from the... Yeah, it does. You know. yeah. This is a like low spot, and I feel like even colder air kind of pulls it down, and... Could. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be looking now. I cannot wait to find my next Mylar balloon, but I will be posting <laughs> on our, our Instagram There needs to be point. a hunt-wise at, uh, icon, a map icon of a balloon. Yeah, there, that's a you great I mean? point, Mylar balloon. Uh, you know what? We're going we're gonna to go We're gonna go talk to the guys. You know, you should be texting this. Nate right now and letting him know because that would be uh, pretty hilarious. Yeah, it's like I said, it's just of all the things you find, and sometimes, and it's a shame, but sometimes you'll find like an old couch you know, I'll often find in one spot in Big Rapids, just like in this general area, a couple mile area, I always find 40 year old beer cans. So 
I don't know what these teenagers were doing back then, sneaking out into the woods. Actually, speaking of which, you're from Windsor, right? Yes. That's where Jared and I used to go to to get beer. Back when we were 19. Yeah. Actually, you want to know something? 18. I was never allowed to go. My mom mom wouldn't let me. You guys went. (laughs) I was not allowed to go. You hate to see it. (laughs) Yeah. Early early drinking age over here. It was kind of nice, actually. Yeah. You guys had like a night, and you went to a cool bar, and there was a cigarette vending machine. It was a whole thing. That would, yeah, that was a I that was, was a, jealous. That was one of those younger trips, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, that story already smells fishy because uh, I, I don't know of any cool bars in downtown <laughs> Windsor. <laughs> They're pretty rough. I oh, think that yeah. to, uh, I'm just to, joking. <laughs> to us at that time, any bar was a cool bar. Yeah, I mean they yeah, let you in. You we didn't even bring our passports on this trip. You did? Oh, because they weren't necessary back. This is no, they definitely were. There's, How'd you get it's over? not very. I mean, you can get into Canada pretty easy. It's but getting, getting back. back. Such sticklers down here. Oh, yeah. We were there for like three hours. We're not allowed in Canada right now, right? No. We can't be, right? No. No no non-essential border crossing as far as I know. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so is it is it weird? Like, I mean, you, we can't come to the United States or to, to Canada. Is it weird to have that kind of barrier there? Like, do you come across often or not so much? I used to cross fairly often. Um You've, you guys have a lot more over there than uh, as far as, I don't know, shopping goes. I used to not do a lot of rock climbing. There's some nice rock climbing gyms over there. Um, it, yeah, I went over fairly often. And uh, I guess to pick up some stuff that I've, I've shipped and maybe or maybe not brought over the border and just to, to make it easier <laughs> right <laughs> <You know>? yeah because <laughs> it's it's terrible like the the shipping and the custom fees that you pay about um getting any hunting related stuff into canada it's it's a bit ridiculous but well if you ever need mules mm-hmm. i mean we can be your we can be your hunting <laughs> gear guys we'll, we'll run them over jared i've seen him poop a balloon before <laughs> <laughs> have you ever pooped a balloon <laughs> It's a mile That's where all these balloons are coming from yeah. out in the, the woods. Eh? <laughs> Just uh, shitting out mylar balloons. Oh, you hate to see that. That's that's rough. Um, well, I'll trade. I'll trade you for a hunt if you if you. That's fair. If you smuggle over my, my my gear. I'll take you for a hunt. How about that? You know, <laughs> I, we we people at least we do. We look at Canada anywhere in Canada as like this magical land mm-hmm. of, of amazing, uh, you know, adventure. And I don't know if that's always the truth but it just seems like maybe because it's far away and it's different you know we i just assume it's great well we definitely have a lot of a lot of wilderness you know a lot of basically untouched wildlands in the the northern part of of the country um but i mean crossing over into windsor it's probably more similar to a lot of places in the states than yeah a lot of other places in Canada. How, how are you guys feeling about this season? Well, Jared just lost. So you through work have a lease that you lost out on, but you now just recently got a new one. Right? That's correct. So I've got a few trail cameras down there. Yeah. It was like we had to get in and get out. He wanted, my boss wanted a couple uh, tree stands set up there. So now we had to pretty much speed scout the whole property right. without screwing anything That's up. That's sweet that your boss is, your job for you, for yourself for a day was to put up tra- trail cameras and tree stands it was it was pretty nice mm-hmm. it's a great benefit so you've got that going on you feel pretty good about that spot yeah 
And then I've got a few other good uh, state land spots that, that I'm pretty ex- yep that I'm pretty excited to to hunt out. It's it might be one of those like later or prime rut spots where you're just gonna go and yep. hope for the best. Yeah, I've got the same thing. I've got actually my woods. We were just looking at trail camera pictures uh, right before this, uh, Shane, and so we've got early doe season. I've got does coming in. I'm gonna definitely go after one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we've got some state land stuff. So yeah, lots of good stuff going on. What about you? That's awesome. Yeah. I've got lot, mostly public land, uh, one small little 20 acre piece of, of private, but the rest is, is public. Um, I've been scouting a ton of new areas this year, so I'm, I'm really excited to, to try them all out. And, um, I just got a saddle this year. Uh, I know you guys, you guys hunt out of saddles, don't you? We do. Mm-hmm. We really like the saddles. Yep. How you like yeah, it? Yeah. Well, uh, so far I love it. I've, it's a new thing for me, so I've been making a point of almost every day or every day that I can before or after work, climbing a tree, setting it up, taking it down, and I'm starting to feel really comfortable with it. And I cut down, I cut my lone wolf sticks down in about half. And um, so with the saddle and those short sticks, and they've got aiders on them, um, I, I'm really excited to hunt this year. I think I'll, it's going to be so easy to hunt a new spot every single time. That's how it goes. I mean, that's that's how public land. A lot of the times, that's how you got to approach it. Yeah, yeah, and, and not being locked on or limited to that those few tree stands that you have preset. It's like you can just walk into the field and use that those woodsmanship skills and that that knowledge of botany and ecology and deer behavior and biology and stuff like that. And you can look for the freshest sign and you can, you can set up right on it. And, and it just, I think it's going to be, you know, I'm not one to say usually that a piece of gear is really going to change, you know, how I hunt or the way that I hunt. But I think with a saddle, it's, it it really will, um, it really will be a game changer. So we'll see how it goes, but I'm, I'm very, very excited to use it this year. So by the end of the season, after you've put it up and taken it down, you're like a pro. Like, I, I feel like at the beginning of the season, I'm even though I practiced a bit, like, you know, you take, you're a little awkward. You feel like you're kind of figuring out your whole system because it's a pretty big change from a tree stand. Um, but by the end of it, you're, you're pretty smooth. Yeah, just setting it up and taking it down um, over the past month or so, I've realized one of the biggest things is looking for the proper uh, tree trunk or branch angle and just setting up on the right um, – the right side of it, the right orientation so that, um, your tether doesn't naturally want to sort of swing you to that lowest side. Um, but beyond that, and that, those are the things that, that you learn. Um, you know, that's why I've been setting it up so often and, uh, getting familiar with it. But, um, yeah, it's things like that little things that I think I'll have to fine tune, but really really happy with it so far. I've done a lot of shooting out of it and no, no issues at all. So I feel like the shooting out of it, I don't know. No, it's I, not. I, it's not bad. It doesn't really change anything, nope. uh, which is nice. I actually, I was going to ask: Are you on a platform? Are you on a ring of steps? Did you say what you were using for for standing on, or just the top of your sticks? Well, yeah, I've got a platform. It's a platform that bolts right onto your top stick. It's called um, it's called a scout, I think, by Out on a Limb. Oh yeah. And uh, I love it. Like, it, it's just so so simple you it's know small it's like too. 
Yeah, and it's not you don't have to carry up a separate platform and set it up. It's like it just makes the whole process easier, you know. And I've so far I've I've got the angled one and I seem to prefer leaning in a saddle rather than sort of sitting with my knees against the tree. Oh, you're so, a leaner, Jared. You're a leaner. I'm a leaner. I'm a knee guy. Are you? Yeah. I got knee pads I put on and I I got old painter knee pads. And uh I don't understand how you monsters do it. How do you put up with that? Just do it. You just do it. <laughs> yeah, I think te- I think tether height plays a lot in in the comfort. That's what I've noticed too. For leaning, I think a lower lower tether height seemed to to help me out, make it more comfortable. But do um, you swing when you're out there? Like, do you swing like a little bit, rock back and forth? Oh yeah, that's a, part of the reason why I think I like the saddle as opposed to a tree stand. Is I can just move around a little more, and I'm kind of an active sort of fidgety person, yeah. and. Uh, yeah, it just gives you the ability to to move around a little bit more, and um, yeah, I, I like that. It, it just it's just something different, and it feels kind of cool hanging in the canopy of a tree in a saddle, you know. <laughs> yeah, and you're like kind of at an angle that so you're like a branch, and we talked about that before, mm-hmm. but I feel like you blend in a little bit better. I've gotten away with a lot more movement in one than I have in a tree stand. I don't know about you, Jared, but yeah, I feel like I they look at me and they just don't see me as much. But I don't. I don't know why. Maybe I'm just really good at camo these days. <laughs> You're really talking yourself up tonight, aren't you? You know what? After knowing, after Shane basically pointed out that I'm great at finding beds. <laughs> I mean, how do you come back from that? There's no living that down. Well, guys, we're coming up at the end here. Shane, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's fun having you. Where can people find you? You know, you actually you have awesome pictures. I actually. We'll check out your stuff all the time. It gets me excited to hunt. Um, a lot of the trad stuff you do is pretty cool. Where, where can people find you? Yeah, um, an Instagram page. It's just at art of bow hunting, art underscore of underscore bow hunting. And, um, yeah, you can see, follow along my with my hunting seasons there. And, um, yeah, see some of the photos and posts that I make. I feel like we just kind of just touched the surface of a lot of this uh, – <laughs> this botany and ecology stuff and and how it can be related to hunting but um yeah hopefully people got something out of it and um best of luck this season i i hope to see some some photos and follow along with your your hunting seasons thanks guys thanks thank you for listening to this episode of the boga hunting podcast if you guys like what you hear and want to follow along on what we're currently up to Hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on and follow us on Instagram at Boga Hunting. Join us next week and we'll see you then.